Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be talking about guns, specifically gun violence. And more specifically, we're going to be talking about school shootings. So it could be a triggering episode, no pun intended. Um, But that leads me to my next point. Tensions can run hot with this, and tensions never run high here at the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. So instead, I brought my cup of coffee. So if you hear me pause and sip, well, I suggest you do the same because this is going to be a long episode. We're going to cover a lot of things. Um, You might disagree with me, but hey, that's okay. Um, I hope you hear me out anyway. I hope you learn something from this and that you come away with a few tools, techniques, ideas that you can employ in your own conversations. All right. Um, Let's see. What other announcement-y kind of things do I have to say? I made a post on Reddit recently, and I don't know if you guys saw it or not, but I asked, what do you wish Catholic podcasters talked more about? And I got a ton of really good responses here. So I'm kind of thinking some of these over, and there are even a few show ideas that I liked, and we'll probably do a little bit later on. One thing that came up a lot was they wanted to hear more practical stuff, issues about how to be more more virtuous, how to become holier. Now, I'm not the world's most practical man, but in a pinch, I can do it. And I think that we should have some more practical advice. Um, Hey, look at this. This episode, I like to think is practical. If you're a policymaker, you could implement some of these changes. Bada bing, bada boom. The world is a better place. So this one's practical. Look at that. We're already leaning into this whole taking advice thing. Another thing that a lot of people said was they wanted to hear more female voices and not just ones to be there talking about female issues, but just how do women view these same issues? I always say that if I describe purgatory to you and my wife describes purgatory to you, you're going to get the same content, but in wildly different ways. I'm going to be perfectly fine about talking about the temporal punishment. She'll talk about that, but she'll probably be nicer. <laughs> um, I, I think there's more than just that one difference. We were made different, um, both in the mi- image of God, but in radically different ways. So I agree with this, and I've made some amount of effort to do this. We had Noelle Maring on. She's awesome. Um, she had some really cool stuff to say in that interview, so I suggest you check that one out. And then uh, Vanessa Forsblad, we had her on too, and she really had some some interesting perspectives. Definitely doesn't sound like Trent Horn when she talks about Catholic issues, but uh, still great things to say. Um, and finally, one that, that I thought was interesting was a lot of people wanted podcasters to talk about money. Uh, not economic. Sadly, nobody suggested they wanted to learn about economics. Maybe they don't know that they want to learn about economics. That's what that's what I like to believe. But they wanted to know practical money handling things. They wanted to know the morality about how to make and spend money. Um, hey, I can help with this. That seems to kind of be in my wheelhouse. I studied financial planning, planning in college, and I occasionally help people out with budgets, personal finance, investment stuff. I think the last person I helped was a geology professor at UVA. It was a little while back. I like to think I gave him rock-solid advice to get him into a higher wealth strata, if you will. So I hope he includes my suggestion. That, that was a lot of puns for you geology nerds out there. All right, without any further ado, today we're talking about 
gun violence. So I'm going to read a little bit from an old Facebook post that I made a few years back. I'll try to update a few of the numbers as I read. After that, I'll lay out an idea that I have been thinking about in my brain, and I think it's going to have broad appeal. It uses the market to solve different gun violence issues. It seeks to decrease the prevalence of bad gun owners, but it also seeks to increase the prevalence of good ones. And in a way that preserves our rights, respects privacy, and allows both the left and the right to have their ideologies put to a market test. So that's coming up too, and I think you're going to like it. I want to hear what what you guys think. Um, Hopefully we have people of different perspectives listening in today. I know we have a lot of international listeners, um, particularly Argentina is ticking up. So way to go, guys. Keep sharing over there. Okay. I wanted to frame this discussion, and truly I want to frame every discussion ever, with some of my favorite words of scripture. It's pulled from Sirach, I'm paraphrasing here. The compassion of the ignorant is cruelty. Go ahead, repeat that one. Repeat it a hundred times. Nobody can repeat it enough. The compassion of the ignorant is cruelty. So... If you're in the U.S., you know that there was, a, there, there was actually more than one shooting recently. And it's all well and good that you feel indignation, anger, and compassion for the victims. That's fine. That's normal. Um, I'm sure that you want to do something. But we have to keep our wits about us. If we don't, compare, if we don't pair our compassion with wisdom, we become a tool of the devil. We will be cruel, and our pride will blind us to our own cruelty. So the compassion of the ignorant is cruelty. I think everybody's got plenty of compassion, maybe too much right now. But they also have too much ignorance. So what I'm worried about is the ensuing cruelty. We need to be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. So let's read that thing that I found in my Facebook feed. Ahem. And this was in light of uh, a year where we began with a number of shootings. Dear gun control debate that is raging on my Facebook feed, you have made me lose faith in humanity even faster than the recent Tide Pod eating craze did. Allow me to offer a few suggestions about how to continue the debate in a way that doesn't cause the flames of this societal dumpster fire to burn any higher. One, if you're quoting a statistic, don't make it up. Exaggerate it, or use ridiculously biased assumptions in generating it. So let's pick on the right for a second. Most gun lobbies, for instance the NRA, claim that there are 2.5 million crimes stopped each year by people with guns. But this is false. It's misleading, and it includes a host of built-in assumptions that wildly inflate the number. A more accurate number is about 250,000 to 150,000. Um, That's pulled from the FBI stats. Don't get me wrong. Remember that number. That's somewhere around 200,000 crimes, which seem to have been stopped due to the presence of a gun. Now, the NRA sent out a survey a while back and said, hey, have you ever prevented a crime because you had a gun? If you ask people that, they'll say, oh, sure I did. Oh, you should have seen me. I pulled out my gun and all them people started running. Well, I probably prevented 15 crimes just before breakfast. All right. Well, that's not necessarily true. A better way to find out is look at the database of crimes and find out, like, 
like, was there criminal activity reported? Like, somebody's trying to break into your house. You said, I have a gun, and they ran away. All right, you would report that to law enforcement. That gets logged in a database. And, yeah, we have numbers on this. And a lot of crimes are prevented, but it's not two and a half million. So that's picking on the right for a second. Coffee sip, as promised. Another example is, at this particular um, time of writing, quote, there have been 18 school shootings this year. Again, let's stop being dishonest. One of those 18 was an old man who drove into a school parking lot after hours and committed suicide. Is that really a school shooting? Another of those 18 was a criminal justice student who accidentally fired a gun in class because he was a moron and didn't know proper gun safety. (laughs) So he didn't kill anybody. I don't think he even injured anybody. But it was logged as a, quote, school shooting. No, he just was a moron. Um, I believe the real number of shootings that would fit the definition that people would commonly associate with the term school shooting, well, that's like two or three, but still not a good start to the year. Two. Okay, so you found some honest data, as much as that's possible. Examine it critically. So let's break down an example. The U.S. has some of the highest gun deaths in the civilized world. But if we drill into that data, we find the following numbers. Now, at the time of writing, that was about 30,000 deaths per year. And 20,000 were suicides. That's changed. I think it's uh, 37,000 deaths. And it, the suicide ratio is lower than, um, than it was at the time of writing. So I think it's like 55, 60% suicides. And back at the time of writing, it was two-thirds of the deaths were suicides. Um, but nevertheless, keep that in mind. Um, when people talk about U.S. gun violence... They include suicides. That is a terrible thing. Um, If you have any tendencies like that, well, contact a mental health professional, a suicide hotline, your priest, your friends, your mom, all those people. Um, It's horrible. We want to prevent all of these. But when we're thinking about gun violence, that's not typically what comes to mind. We, we, We need to keep our heads about this. So let's talk about, at the time of writing, the 10,000 non-suicides, so violent, well, we won't even go that far, the non-suicides. Well, did you know that 7,500 happened in just a handful of cities, such as Detroit, St. Louis, and Chicago? In fact, ooh, this is a fun part, if these are pulled out of the data, and the rest of the nation's rates of gun violence is compared to the rest of the world, We're one of the lowest in the world. We're lower than most or almost all European nations, so long as we take out these crazy cities. Um, Now, I do want to point out, in fairness, that if I were on the opposite of society, I would say, yeah, but what if we take Germany and we pull out their worst cities? We need to compare apples to apples. And that's true. However, I think this shows it's a very much localized problem. So, the 2,500 remaining ones, which aren't localized in these cities, um, which if you've ever been been to some of these, yeah, they're dangerous. Um, Some of these murders would have been committed with something other than a gun if guns were no longer available. Um, 
And uh, it, because, let's say, there was a gun control measure in place, which meant that their gun was somehow, somehow removed. So let's put some of this data into a simple formula for assessing the net effects of gun on crime. So the net effects of guns on crime would equal the positive effects. You remember those 150 to 250,000 um, crime-stopping defensive gun uses? And there are a variety of other positive effects. The idea that we can have a well-regulated militia, that we have the opportunity of self-defense, that we have um, opportunity for hunting, target shooting, all sorts of things like that. We have a gun culture from which uh, police and military are commonly derived such that their skill sets are over and above what may be seen from a culture that doesn't have such a, um, a strong group. Any, anyways, positive effects minus negative effects, right? We need to think about both. Um, right now in the media, we're uh, only told to, to contemplate the negative effects, the most salient, the most recent uh, negative effects. But we need to take into account both to know the net effects of guns. So the net effects would equal that, say, 200,000 defensive uses times the severity of the crime deterred times the likelihood the crime would not have been deterred in another way minus parentheses 10,000 minus accidents times the severity of these crimes times the likelihood that that crime would not have been, um, would not have occurred with the use of a substitute weapon. There you go. That's a formula. Maybe if we crunched the numbers, it turns out that the net effects of guns on safety is negative. So what happens if we pass a law making it difficult for people who have been treated for, say, mental illness to buy a gun, right? That's one that we've heard a lot. Well, the variable that is added to the formula will be on both sides of the equation. Some mentally ill people certainly deter crimes with their guns. In fact, here's a little-known fact. Um, those who have been treated for mental illness are vastly more likely to be the victim of a gun crime than the general population. And they're also more likely to be the victim than the perpetrator. And that's not even close. On the other hand, some mentally ill people commit crimes with the guns. So the question is, what happens in balance? I think if we just suggested don't let mentally ill people have guns, our gut reaction is, yeah, that's pretty common sense. But even this, and maybe that is a good idea, but even this, we need to think critically here. They're more likely to be the victim. They do, in fact, prevent crimes with this. Not all mental illness is the same. We, not all of it's violent. In fact, the, the minority of it is violent. Um, yeah, we need to think, uh, think about that and maybe do an individual-based and not such a broad-stroke uh, solution. What percentage of law-abiding people with, will, combi will comply with the law and thereby remove themselves from the group of people who stop crimes with their guns, right? So if we introduce a law, um, the law-abiding people are more likely than the criminal people to abide by it. So that means that something on our good side of the equation, right, preventing crime, stopping crimes, well, that will decrease, so now what happens on the other side? What percentage of criminals will be forced to comply with the law and not find a way around it? I would suggest if these questions can't be answered and with robust arguments and concrete data, 
they probably shouldn't be passing laws. Because again, compassion of the ignorant is cruelty. We don't want ignorance. We want to know things, guys. Three, the problem of reverse causality and what to do with time series data. Interestingly, the highest rates of gun violence tend to be in cities with the strictest gun laws. Now, this is pointed out by the right a lot. Well, see, they don't do anything, but stop here. It could be that strict gun laws lead to more gun crime, right? That's what the right may say. And there are ways that we could understand in particular circumstances that that could be the case. Or, actually, it could be and, gun crime leads to stricter gun laws. That's true, too. So it could conceivably be both, where one feeds into the other, right? Um, I invite the listeners to see if you can research this for me and let me know what you find. I was trying to find, um, there was an instance a while back where I guess there were some home invasions and whatnot in Florida, and it was either the state or at least a couple counties that said that every old person uh, had to have a shotgun in their home. And as soon as people knew that they could be breaking into an old person's house and they could have a shotgun, well, the crime rate plummeted as a result. Um, So, yeah, it's a good instance where we had a a law that came into place and it reduced crime. Um, And we could say, well, look, we increased the guns and therefore the crime decreased. Well, we're dealing with a specific set of the population here. I don't know why I was saying that. But suffice to say, we need to pay attention to which direction the causal arrow is going. Sometimes that's trickier than we think. So in looking at facts and figures, ask the question, is this an instance of reverse causality? If it is, to what degree? What bearing does this have on the information presented? One way to answer these questions is with time series data. The question would be, did gun crime drop after strict gun laws were passed and enforced? So let's take another example. After Australia passed comprehensive gun control regulation, gun crime dropped. On the surface, this seems like solid proof. But to stop here would be to ignore important questions that get us closer to the truth. What was the trend in crime before then? Was crime already falling? What happened to crime in similar nations that did not take such measures? Was there a substitution effect? And to what degree were other weapons used instead? Did other crimes rise in proportion as deterrence effects declined? Is the data being measured correctly? Are the changes statistically significant? All of those things need to be answered. I don't know the answers to all those questions. If you're in Australia and you do, let me know. Um, But one, I I know a few. (laughs) So what was the trend in crime before then? Uh, The trend was it was falling. Um, What happened to crime in similar nations that did not take such measures? Uh, They fell and at a similar rate. Was there substitution effect and to what degree? Yes, there was. Mm -hmm. And we've certainly seen that in England as of late. Uh, Did other crimes rise in proportion as deterrence effects declined? Um, I don't know about all of them, but I do know that there were home invasions like crazy because good people were giving up their guns. Bad people knew that. So home invasions spiked. Is the data being measured correctly? I have no idea. And were the changes statistically significant? Again, I don't know. Um, Somebody plug that into um, 
uh, plug that into a, a stats program or do it on Excel, do it on paper, I don't know, do it with your pocket calculator. Tell me the R squared value when you're done. Okay. Wow, I wrote a lot. This is a long Facebook post. You see, guys, a little history. I started by posting too much on Facebook and realizing that's too much, so I just wrote it into articles. And then I had a ton on my computer, and I thought, where should I put these? So I put them on a website. And then people read those occasionally and then said, Jake, you've posted so many on your website, I can never read them all. So I said, no worries, I will read them to you. So I made audio files and I posted on the website. And then people said, wait, where is it? I have to click a tab? I'm confused. So I said, well, I'll just shove it all into a podcast. And um, boom, there we go. Now I have a podcast. You're here, I'm here, and the world goes round and round. All right. So we have to ask some other questions um, dealing with this issue. One is, uh, what's legally allowed by the Constitution? So if you're in the U.S., um, you have a right to bear arms, and uh, that's not supposed to be infringed upon. There's questions about what exactly that means, but that's a consideration, like a like a real one. There's a reason why we have the Second Amendment. Um, yeah, we need to consider that. So when we're offering solutions, we need to be within the bounds of the law. If you want to change the Constitution, that's called an amendment. And that can be done, but you're going to need a majority of states, and we need to abide by all governing authorities, and part of that is the rule of law that we have in place. So what are other uses of guns, and what's their value? How would these new laws affect their uses? So this can't be just put aside. I mean, I like to give the example of, like, the use of cars. There are people with very fast cars. Sometimes they drive too fast, and they crash. But here's the thing. We do understand that being able to own a fast car is a value, even if this cost can be put on other people. We can never fully match the, the benefits that we have to the negative externalities which are borne by others. At some point, um, the cost of bringing about fairness exceeds the value of bringing about fairness. We talked about that a little bit in the tax episode, um, but let me give you a, a, an example. I think this is pulled from Tyler Cohen, somebody, an economist. Anyways, he describes a situation where uh, there's a there's a four-way stop and um, it's in this uh, small town and they, um, they there's four cars that all arrive and everybody jumps out of their car and they start discussing. They say, hey, um, I was going to pick up medication for my sick kid. Somebody else says, well, I am actually late to work and here's what I do. And they all begin to discuss why they're why they're there and uh, why they should be able to go first and why the next person should be able to go second. And this takes 10, 15 minutes to do. And at the end, they get back in the cars and then the, the right person goes first, the right person goes next, and uh, they clear the intersection. Well, was that the best way to go about that? No, of course not. Wait, that, that wasted 10, 15 minutes at the intersection. You might as well just have a traffic light. Is the traffic light fair? No, it's not. But we have to accept that the cost of making things perfectly fair can exceed the, uh, the, the actual value that we get from that. I'm not necessarily making a claim that this is the case, but it cer certainly can be a, a countervailing factor here. There are many uses of guns. There is real value here. And uh, yeah, there's also negative externalities. That's true of pretty much everything. 
And uh, we don't demand that every single possible externality is paid for um, to a degree that's going to be overall um, bad for society. All right. Next question. Can we trust our government? Right. Um, I think a lot of people on the right ask this question. We don't have the world's best one. We have one with sanctions and funds, the mass slaughter of the unborn. This isn't exactly the world's most moral and lovely institution. And we see that it's a prerequisite for tyranny, the confiscation of the means of resistance. So, yeah, maybe that's not this generation, but things are moving fast, guys. The world's a crazy place. Um, We need to consider that um, we may need guns in the future. That might have sounded crazy uh, not long ago, but uh, yeah, like I said, things are moving fast. Um, We also need to know if there's a slippery slope thing going on here, like If we have a registration, does that mean we'll later have a confiscation or other measures? And then we need to know what is the bearing of potential laws and the ability for people to rightly defend themselves. Because that's a right. You have a right to self-defense. That's important. That's even in scripture. You can totally defend yourself. In fact, in scripture, if somebody is breaking into your house at night, uh, you can kill them and you are not uh, liable for murder. That That's reasonable. You don't know why they were there, what they were going to do. So they've taken on the, um, the risk and uh, yeah, you shouldn't try to kill them. Um, and you know, I think we actually have similar laws to what you see in the Old Testament regarding this stuff. All right. So what other angle or perspective you have? We need to treat other people with respect in these discussions because this is a touchy subject and it's easy to demonize other people, to construct strawman arguments and to resort to ad hominem attacks. But these things aren't ultimately productive. Um, Oftentimes you hear, you don't care about children if you don't support any just blank check uh, (laughs) group of people. potential gun laws. Like, no, of course, we, we all care about children. Nobody wants dead people. We're on the same page. What we need to talk about is the practical nuts and bolts, rubber meets the road, things that we do about this. And trust me, I have suggestions. Um, quick word about the substitution effect I talked about in that little um, equation that I talked about. Look into what's going on with uh, the UK. They've been progressively banning guns more and more and more. And knife attacks have almost one for one uh, replaced those, which I find interesting. As of late, London had more murders than New York City recently because of this rise in knife attacks. So it seems like murderers still find a way to murder even without guns. Now, you may have heard right then that I said gun laws will do nothing ever because the murderers will always find another way. No, I don't think that's true. I think a percentage of them will find another way, and a percentage of them will say, eh, well, guns are easier, and if I can't use those, I'm not really going to knife anybody. But I think it's very important for this discussion to know what percentage is that. Do do we have a 99% substitution? Do we have a 1% substitution? Right, that answer really matters. So, maybe you're a a grad student in um, I don't know, I guess it could be economics, but sociology and something like that. That could be a really cool uh, project to learn about the substitutionary effect of um, of crimes in the light of um, laws making something more difficult. So that'd be cool. We need to know that. That's an empirical question. So where does all this leave us? Well. 
Be careful what you hear. Uh, be careful with what you hear. Did you know that so many gun deaths were suicides? Right? Like you may have heard the the top line number, but I'm sure most people didn't know that uh, that doesn't represent people going and killing people. That's commonly suicide. It's true that the suicide attempt um like success rate is way higher with guns. It's almost 100% success. Um and that's something we need to address, but that looks really different than a law which prevents crime. Did you know that gun, cl- that gun violence is so highly localized? Um, I think this is another thing that surprised me. Um, it's really just hot spots. And I think that we know how to deal with a lot of that. It's, and I'll get to those suggestions. And what about those defensive uses? If I had asked you how many defensive uses there were, um, according to the FBI uh, database stats, what would you have said? And what weights do you give to each of those things, right? So have you ever heard a politician speak on the percentage of crime that would have been substituted with something like a knife? They probably should. I think the London, New York example certainly shows that. When did you hear about the highly localized nature of the problem? Uh, in no small part, that's due to intergang warfare. We have solutions for this. For instance, uh, we can have stronger, more aggressive policing. We can have smarter sentencing requirements for criminals. And in specific areas, um, with, with prudence as a rule, we could do stop and frisk in these areas that are hotspots where we have gang warfare, etc. And we could also relocate Uh, low-level offenders so that they're not being absorbed back into a culture which is extraordinarily criminal. We could have increased community interventions to try to stem this. And heck, we could have missionary activity here, for crying out loud. I went to a place called Liberty University. I think I've said that before. So many people believe that they are called to start a church or they are called to be a missionary. Not very many of them consider that, you know, there's places here in the U.S. that they might need to go. It's always, I need to go to Africa, why the Africans need to know. Um, Or I need to go to that place that I happened to go on a missions trip when I was 12. Well, may I suggest this? How about you go to inner city Chicago, Like, like the bad part? Be a missionary there. Because in Christian history, that's kind of the thing that they did. I mean, imagine the missionaries that went up into into oh, to, to, to evangelize the Druids, right? <laughs> There's some pretty wild people. Or St. Patrick, who went to Ireland, where there was all the people, what, painted blue, and there was Merlin and all that stuff. Anyways, I've only seen movies about it. In any case... Missionary activity, that needs to be on the table. Come on, we're the church. We can do this. Is it dangerous? Yeah, it is. Um, But I bet you there's somebody holy enough, maybe who's even listening, who could take this on. Uh, Worst case, you get martyred. Do you get a straight ticket uh, right on up to heaven? And the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So who knows what will happen after that? All righty. So when you hear people throwing around stats and figures, slow down, ask questions, think. Yes, think. Think about it. Think about which way the causal error is going. Think about how the data was collected. 
critical analysis. We don't want to be ignorant. It's totally possible that I've said something wrong here. So be critical about what I've said. Look into the stuff for yourself. So if I were to answer why the U.S. has more gun crimes and specifically more school shootings, let me just give you a few answers here. One, yeah, we have more guns. So here's the thing, though. People like to undo the last and most obvious thing uh, that happened before a tragedy. If you've ever been to a funeral, you'll see this effect. Somebody dies in a car crash, they'll say, oh, well, if he just wasn't driving that day, or maybe as an old person, oh, well, if he had just given up his license, you know. All right, so when we see a school shooting, we say, oh, if he just didn't have a gun, right? All right, well, that makes sense psychologically, but we have to rationally look at can we undo that last thing? Maybe we need to undo something completely other. Maybe we need to not undo something, but we need to do something, right? Like, just because there's the obvious thing doesn't mean it's the right thing. Um, my wife uh, is a biologist, and she teaches a lot of ecology. And they talk about different secession stages in ecosystems. So you have an equilibrium then maybe there's a climactic shift or there's an invasive species. And this can create this, um, this imbalance in the normally balanced ecosystem and poof, it goes through a change to a different type of ecosystem. So maybe it goes from a prairie to a, a forest. Well, you might think that you could just undo maybe the entrance of the invasive species and yeah, it'll go back to the previous state. Yeah, that's totally not true. So when we're talking about our society, it's way more like an ecosystem than like a machine. You can't just back up the gear or, you know, hit the, put the thing in reverse. That doesn't work. This is an ecosystem. So you can't just remove the quote unquote invasive species and expect that you'll go to some previous stage. It's not a thing. You might have to go through a whole bunch of intermediate stages of secession before you arrive at the first, or it might actually be impossible to arrive at the beginning one. So I'd like to point that out. Um, also, we have just a unique history, um, which is why we have so many guns. I mean, we had to win the West. We had the Industrial Revolution at a certain time. We were a more rural community. We didn't have a history of of uh, like feudal lords restricting the ownership of weapons in general. There's just a lot of historical reasons why ju this just is the case. And it is true that if we were trying to remove the guns and the first ones to give them up, would uh, definitely not be the people that we want them to give up. Because, yeah, the critique that criminals aren't going to give up their guns because of a new law is true, right? Criminals, by definition, are people who don't abide by laws. So if we wanted to remove guns out of the population, the last people to comply are the people who just, as a rule of thumb, don't comply with laws. So we talked about that equa equation, that the net effect on society is the positive effects minus the negative effects. So we're going to keep the negative effects of gun violence because the criminals probably aren't going to change. Maybe a few will. Maybe we could come up with something. Um, but yeah, we're going to tip the balance in the wrong direction. Um, we can't just be so naive to think, oh, lots of guns means they have more violence. Therefore, we'll just take away the guns. <laughs> that's not how it works. That's a, uh, I hate to say mean things, but that's kind of like a like a childish way to think. We need to be not ignorant. We can't be so simple. We need to be a little bit smarter here. So 
All right. Um, yeah, let, let me just give an example here after I've been mean. All right, just because a society with more cars means more car crash deaths. Um, and by the way, I think it's like 25,000 deaths a year. So it's somewhere in the ballpark of gun deaths. This doesn't follow that we should get rid of cars. Why? Because they have net benefits. The best solution to the car deaths is to have safer roads, to have better drivers, to have airbags. I like to point out that here in the U.S., on average, every $10,000 that has been spent on guardrails saves one life. So that's a really good thing. So people who put up guardrails, they're heroes. Also, well, that was tangent. Anyways, as a historical point, the deaths per mile on horseback were way, way higher than uh, the deaths per mile in a car. And this kind of reminds me of the whole knife violence thing that we're talking about earlier. Um, Just because we could regress to a previous technology doesn't mean that's necessarily safer. I think England might point that out at the moment. Um, So yeah, cars, lots of them. A society which has lots of cars will have a lot of car deaths. That's true. But if we go back, if we remove the cars, we go to horses, we'll have more deaths. Um, So that's just a point that our intuition that just undo the thing which causes or creates the preconditions for the bad thing we don't like, well, to just undo that isn't always the best way about it. We need to consider more factors. Now, I'll have to do a little bit more digging, but looking at a state-by-state level, it seems that the higher gun ownership states per capita, like Montana, Wyoming, West Virginia, have a lower gun violence rate, not death rate because they have a lot of suicides, but lower gun violence rate um, than the lowest ownership states like New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts. Um, I also did some really back of the, the envelope calculations, and it looks like New Jersey has, has a, well, it's a higher, but it's a similar uh, gun ownership rate to Sweden. Um, so yeah, when you look at these low gun ownership states, they're still higher than most nations globally, um, but uh, they're not that far off, which kind of points to me to societal factors, to other factors other than just the prevalence of guns. Um, what else? What is this list? Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, reasons why the U.S. in general has more gun cr- crimes. Um, the second reason would be we're a large country. We're a larger country than most. Therefore, freak events of any type will be more common. And also, since we have a common media, we're going to hear about them more. Um, and finally, it's just a societal thing that school kids hear a lot about school shootings in the U.S. We have drills about it in some schools. We hear it in the media. Uh, this has become a cultural idea that shooting up a school is a live option for a disturbed kid. Um, now, write in if you're from another nation and tell me if that's the same in your uh, country, but I don't think it is. Like, kids grow up hearing about the Columbine shooters and other people. Um, even if you don't say the name of a shooter, as you never should, um, the fact that they exist and they get so much media attention puts a seed in the mind of disturbed kids that this is something that they could do. So I'm going to chalk a lot of this violence up to path dependence. We, we just, it started and now it's continuing. And I think we should give this a lot less press 
because I don't want kids to have this as a salient part of their upbringing, as a life option of evil things they can do. Uh, that's a terrible idea. All right, all right. So let's talk about my proposed solution. It's not going to fix everything, but I do think it's going to push stuff in the right direction. It's going to raise those positive effects, lower the bad effects, and that's, well, that's what we want to do. So we're going to switch over to an article on my site, thegordiannot.org, and we're going to read it. Um, it's not too long. I think you're going to like it, and I might make a few modifications at the end. Do, 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 do. Few issues are as divisive as gun control policies, but could a well-thought-out gun insurance market strike a middle ground? Here's the goal. The ideal gun control law that would decrease the number of it would decrease the number of guns in the hand of those who are most likely to inflict harm on others. It would protect Americans' free exercise of the Second Amendment rights, and it would support citizens who use guns to deter crime and protect themselves and others. Here's the proposal. Every gun owner must hold insurance against the risk of their gun harming another in a crime or an accident. The market for this insurance ought to be entirely in the free market, with government meddling limited only to the lawful requirement of insurance. Groups that might offer this insurance could include the NRA, the USCCA, Bass Pro Shops, Cabela's, Allstate, Geico, and others. Here's how it works. Base coverage rates are mandatory at a state level, much like the liability insurance that you carry on your car. And naturally, premiums will be based on risk. If you are a 20-year-old gang-affiliated male in Baltimore, your premiums may be prohibitively high. If you're a mountain man in Montana, your yearly rate may be paid in pocket change. However, even that pocket change is not entirely wasted because it represents the extremely small chance of a hunting accident rather than a crime. If such an accident were to occur, the mountain man's insurance would amply compensate the affected party. Only the information the gun owner wishes to provide to the insurance company will be on file. And I would add that I think that these databases should be held um, privately by the company that you have contracted with and not be available to the government. I'm pretty sure that that would have to be the law um, for reasons. I'm no lawyer, though. Of course, the insurance company would be suspicious of what seems to be purposeful concealment of personal details, and the premium would vary accordingly. Many people would opt to, pay, to offer plenty of information to lower their premium. Some might take safety classes or purchase a safe and show that information to the insurance company. The actions taken to lower risk would be voluntary, and the information would be sent to a trusted uh, company of the gun owner's own choosing and not to a government database. If an insured gun owner murders somebody, their insurance will split the payout to compensate the victims and the law enforcement in the jurisdiction. If, however, someone uses their gun to prevent a crime in a lawful manner, the law enforcement in the area must pay the gun owner's insurance company. If a law enforcement agency is too small to self-insure against a co this cost, they must hold insurance against the risk that they fail to protect their citizens. Insurance companies may see that some people would warrant negative premiums due to the far greater likelihood that their gun ownership would lead to crime deterrence 
and therefore subsequent payments to their insurance company. It's likely that such people would be offered training and instruction on how to lawfully defend themselves and others. Here's some frequently asked questions. Response number one. Why wouldn't a criminal just skip this insurance stuff and buy a black market gun? Answer, well, they probably would. The difference is if a law enforcement officer sees that somebody suspicious has possession of a gun, currently there's really little they can do. If no local ordinances stand in the way of their possession of it, um, or if even if the, gov- the gun is not registered to them, they can always respond to an officer that it's their friend's gun, and so long as they're of age, they'd be free to go. With this gun insurance proposal in effect, the officer would ask if they have proof of gun owner's insurance. If the answer is no, that gun would be taken until they prove that they hold a policy. So this is a small improvement in dealing with the black market gun problem, but it's an improvement nonetheless. There's no easy answer to this particular problem, as the thriving drug trade proves. The government's not exactly great at stopping black markets. Um, But under this proposal, the government won more tool. And I will suggest that um, there's lots of people driving around with uh, liability insurance for their car, even though they don't want to. Um, Sure, at least in my state, they fine you if you don't have such a thing. But um, that's been widely adopted, right? This same criminal who might be a a gangbanger might have his whip or hoopty insured to the minimum levels. Response number two. Insurance doesn't fix the fact that people still get shot, so it's a dumb idea. Answer, that's true. But the only way to 100% stop people getting shot is to remove all guns. But this is absolutely impossible to do peaceably or practically, would have a ton of negative consequences, and it would be a clear violation of the Second Amendment of the Constitution and a violent offense against the individual property rights of citizens. Disarmament by force of law suffers from the much-cited problem that only criminals would retain their guns. What a market of competing insurance companies would do is examine individuals on a per-person basis and discourage potentially dangerous owners at the margins while subsidizing those who protect against crimes. Government programs and rule-of-thumb laws just simply don't have the same pixel density and nuance to encompass nearly as much as the variability present in a highly competitive market. To reiterate, this will push potentially criminal or irresponsible gun owners out of the market at the margins. It also would give law enforcement an additional means of preventing a gun crime by having the ability to inspect the paperwork of any person in possession of a gun without escalation. In the real world, I think this is as good as it gets. Furthermore, compensating victims and bolstering law enforcement's budgets certainly counts for something. Response number three. Why would a law enforcement agency have to pay an insurance company? Isn't that wrong? Answer. If an insured gun owner breaks into another insured gun owner's home to kill him and is shot, insurance will be paid in the following way. The police pay the homeowner's gun insurance company, and then they receive a payment from the intruder's insurance company. 
In this way, the police have an incentive to make sure that anyone who may commit a gun crime has insurance and that no citizen should have to use their gun to prevent a crime in the first place. If law enforcement agencies only stop crime, they'll be the beneficiary of the program. Whereas if the citizens in the area are forced to defend themselves, the agencies will pay the price. In this way, the agencies are held into account in the areas where their intervention should matter most. There you go. There's old Jake's suggestion right there. Um, so a lot of people are worried about, does this infringe on the right to bear arms? Um, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. This might, could be. Uh, one possible answer is that we could then send a subsidy to all Americans, which would equal the average amount of a gun insurance premium. So if you're in excess of that, well, sorry, buddy, that's your problem. You have excess liability. If you're under than that, under that, well, congratulations, you got a little bit of a tax subsidy. I don't know if that works legally. Maybe it would. Um, again, this happens at the margins, and this is important. We have a lot of evidence that just small changes um, can really affect behavior. I mean, look at all the nudge literature for what that's worth. Um, one thing that, that was raised, which I thought was a cool finding, was when the, uh, the, the, the was, there's child seats in cars. When laws went in place that kids that were young had to be in those, the rate of... Um, the rate of parents who had three children dropped because it's really hard to put a car seat in that middle seat. And there's some pretty strong findings that that really did have a strong causal effect. <laughs> so you wouldn't think that that would really push the balance, right? Like I want a third kid, but oh, what if I have to put a car seat in the middle? Or what, really, would that make a change? The answer is yes. So by increasing the cost of gun ownership for the people who are at highest risk, yeah, I think that's going to have an effect. Um, now, I, I guess one one objection is, well, what about putting myself in a, in, a, in a liberal mindset here? What about equality? What if these mean and nasty money-grubbing insurance companies look at this kindly young, um, let's say, black man in inner-city Baltimore and say, look, look at his zip code. He's in an impoverished area. I'm going to discriminate against him because of his poverty. Why look at his skin color. I'm going to discriminate him against him because of his skin color. Therefore, I'm going to charge him a ridiculous amount. Well, let me suggest a, a few things here. One, it's already illegal to discriminate on race, so that's against the law. Um, next, this is a market. So let's assume that you are completely right, that uh, obviously this person is a wonderful, kind-hearted person. Well, then you're suggesting that there's a money-on-the-table opportunity for, say, a more, um, more progressive insurance company to come along offer him a more competitive premium, and collect the winnings, right? Because if, if we're wrong that he's more likely to do violence, well, then let's just let an insurance company take that, take that bet. And uh, yeah, there you go. I think there's, there's plenty of more liberal-leaning insurance companies that would agree with that critique and say that, uh, that uh, yeah, he's probably not going to be criminal just for those reasons. And um We'll just find out, right? Um, let's see. Another thing is, 
let's say we have these – we can look into a lot more factors than that. And obviously I don't think we should be looking at race. That's illegal. That's wrong. But what if that person in inner city Baltimore said, hey, I would like to submit to the insurance company that I volunteer at the um, – what is it? The Big Brothers, Big Sisters group for under – privileged kids. I have a a letter from my employer, from my pastor, that I'm a really great person. I would also like to make available my, my lack of a criminal record. So you can look at that too. I've taken a gun safety course and I, I don't know, maybe did some ride-alongs with the local police and have a number of references from them. Well, what's the insurance company going to do now? They're going to say, wow, this is an awesome guy to encourage to have a gun. Maybe we should put him through more training. And if he has a gun and he stops a crime, we get a payout. So they're going to encourage that person. So all we have to do is set up this stage, have a free market for it, allow the premiums to move based on risk. And then there's going to be an incentive to give the best people who are going to prevent the most crimes guns and the training to use them. And at the margins, those people who can't produce that, uh, the people who we have good reason, maybe they have a criminal record that's violent, um, yeah, they, they're going to be discouraged. And then the police have a tool for um, removing these weapons from the right people. It's not just a ham-handed removal from the, the, uh, from the wrong people, right? And by wrong in this case, I'm, I mean it's wrong to remove guns from people who would use them appropriately, right? So we're targeting the right people, the correct people. There you go. Um, another thing we can point out is this really dovetails nicely with uh, red flag laws. So some states and I think some jurisdictions have red flag laws. Basically, you have somebody that you're really concerned about owning a gun. You think they're a danger to others or yourself. And then you can contact the court. They can do an investigation and remove their ability to have weapons in their home. Uh, I support these laws. Obviously, they, they need to be used wisely. We need to have protections against just anybody making a report and having people's um, ability to own a, a firearm removed. We don't want that. But there is, a, there is a good way to have these laws in place. I would suggest that if, um, if there is an intermediate case where the court can't come down and say, we will remove your right to own a weapon, maybe there's a, a case that is kind of fuzzy, then hey, Jake's Insurance Marketplace comes right in and you could report to the insurance company that you have questions or that maybe you want to withdraw that reference for that person we talked about earlier because you see really violent tendencies. You can offer your evidence and then they could change, cancel, restrict things in their policy. Um, so there you go. Okie dokie. Um, let's end with a, let's end with, oh, wait a minute. We have more to go. How much do I talk at you poor people? I, I don't even know. You know what? Let's take a brief break. And then after that, we're going to talk about a couple common sense regulations that we can put in to protect kids and schools specifically. And then we're going to go over a, we'll briefly go over an article that suggests some, um, some fixes, which I think are are not very wise. So we're going to give a, a good things to do, bad things to do, and then wrap it on up. Welcome back after that four-second interlude. 
Um, it was longer on my end. Time doesn't work the same between the two of us. All right, where was I? So, here's a few common sense solutions for schools specifically. Why don't we install auto-locking steel and bulletproof glass doors with a panic button? This is done in a lot of schools. Um, I think I heard from Ben Shapiro that in his uh, local Jewish school that his kids go to, they have this. I think that's a one-time cost that we could totally pay for. Do you know how many stupid things we pay for at a federal and state level? Do you know how much money we waste? If we covered the cost of this, I can't think of much better money we could be spending. Um, Yeah, come on. If we had a door that was bulletproof and on every single classroom, we had a number of them in the halls so that the shooter could be trapped in the halls, and we have all exterior doors that can do this panic button controlled by a variety of different people. Maybe even each teacher could smash some glass, hit the button, and now we have this person quarantined. Uh, Yeah, that's a really good move. Um, Another one is we can have other defensive measures. For instance, uh, sirens, like not just a fire alarm, but things that are really, really, really loud. Um, And that can make somebody who doesn't have crazy earplugs not want to stick around. Again, these are commonly children. This isn't like a hardened, you know, spec ops guy. Um, So yeah, that's used in a variety of ways. For instance, anti-piracy. We use super loud, irritating noises to deter people. So we can certainly deter shooters here. And even if it has to be in a classroom with other people there, well, it's better that the kids have a little bit of hearing loss than loss of life. Um, Another one, and I think this one's also a pirate deterrent, is a smoke deterrence, right? There's different smoke stuff that we could just pump into whatever area that they're at um, or heck the whole school and it it pretty much blinds them. Why not? Like we could totally be creative here. It's a one-time cost. Some of the best money I can think of spending. Another one is we, it's been said many times that we guard our money better than our kids. Why not have a school resource officer there or a trained security guard? And there's more reasons than just shootings. Um, My mother is a guidance counselor and she's almost 70 years old, but still she, she uh, has to wrestle all of these kids. Granted, it's an elementary school, but some of these fifth graders are like a hundred and something pounds and they're wily and they bite and they scratch and they spit, do all sorts of other things. Um, Yeah, that's insane that we have, we have 70-year-old women having to restrain these people. Um, the vast majority of teachers are, are women. And there's violent stuff that goes on in schools. I mean, just think about high schools. Uh, we need people who are trained to restrain and protect. There's all sorts of terrible violence that's not limited to shootings. There's terrible stuff. I went to high school. There were fights all the time. And uh, guess who would break them up? Me! Me! Because... Oftentimes, administration isn't there or teachers can't do it or whatever. Um, So to have some amount of protection, both from kid to kid and from whatever shooter, be they a kid or somebody from the community, isn't that a common sense measure? Yes, obviously we should have security there. People who are armed, people who are trained, and uh, in addition to all the common sense defensive measures. So I'm going to read a few suggestions from the Prevention Institute. And I think many of them are silly because you always hear, do something, if only we had the will, if we 
did something. All right, cool. What the heck are you talking about? What things? Some things are dumb ideas. Some things are good ideas. Here's their suggestion. Now, I think from what I can see, these are pretty much par for the course. One, sensible gun laws. Reduce access to dangerous weapons. This is an example of what I'm talking about. How vague can you get? Next, establish a culture of gun safety. This is spoken like somebody who doesn't know anything about gun culture. Um, did I already cite the stat that um, at most given years, that at least I've seen, the, the rate of criminality among concealed carry uh, permit holders is lower than the rate of crime amongst police officers. And if you go to any shooting range, any gun store, you're going to find a culture of gun safety. Trust me. And underneath there, here, they suggest uh, safe storage, uh, mandatory training, um, responsible dealers and owners. I don't know what that means. Um, reducing firearm access to youth and individuals who are at risk of harming themselves. I think that doing laws to make this happen is virtually impossible, right? Like seriously, require safe gun storage. How are you going to enforce that? You're literally going to have to go door to door and inspect for safe storage. That's insane. A much better option is what I described earlier. With the insurance model, you simply show your insurance company you have installed a safe, you've purchased it, you take some pictures, you do that. That's a voluntary measure that can increase such things. And they'll have smart actuaries figuring out what things reduce the risk the most and encouraging people to do those. So I think that's the right way to do it. And that's going to go a long way to actually prevent some of these things and establish this quote-unquote safe gun culture that they're decrying. They also suggest hold the gun industry accountable and ensure there is adequate oversight over the marketing and sales of gun and ammunition. All right, there is no marketing which markets towards people just killing people or violence. That's just absolutely false. And I'm pretty sure that's illegal because that's inciting to violence and it's not protected speech. Um, holding the gun in industry accountable, that's ridiculous. That No, if there is a failure of the product and it results in a death, yes, you can totally, current law, hold these people accountable. Just like if you're driving your 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 new Mustang and then because they recklessly put on your steering, you crash into a wall, you can sue Ford for that. That's fair. But if you use your Mustang to plow through a bunch of people, uh, no, that's on you, buddy. So that's that's an insane measure. Of course we shouldn't hold the, a manufacturing group uh, liable for the use of something. Um, and I think it's misleading to say that we need to change the way that it's marketed and sold as if they were marketing it in a way which increases violence. That's insane. Go ahead. Go, go ahead and look up on any website you please for firearms and find me one instance where they're promoting violence in this way. It does not happen. All right. Underlying contributors to gun violence, systematically reducing risks and increasing resilience in individuals, families, and communities. Again, can you be more vague? Public health solutions. Recognize gun violence as a critical and preventable public health problem. Guys, <laughs> this is not a health problem, right? Um, that's insane. You could argue that maybe mental illness is a health problem, maybe a public health problem, maybe. Um, but that's not the same. Having mental illness is not the same as shooting people. These two things are not the same. 
Um, shooting people is not a health thing. It is not a disease that you contract when you were hit by a bullet. Um, no. I'm all for public health solutions to address mental health, but the idea that we could should medicalize gun violence, that's ridiculous and illogical. I'm, I really don't know where this is coming from. Well, never mind. I kind of do. Because if we can classify it as a public health problem, if we can put it under the CDC, for example, then that means that Guns can be regulated to a greater degree than if we treat it as a crime problem, which it actually is because it's obviously a crime. So I think it's a power grab here and it's just vaguely veiled and doesn't make sense. Comprehensive solutions. Support community planning and implementation of comprehensive community safety plans that, per that include prevention and intervention. Super vague. You need to actually you know, speak real solutions here, guys. Trauma, connection, and services. Expand access to high-quality, culturally competent, coordinated, social, emotional, and mental health supports and, and address the impacts of trauma. Okay, if this just means like um, mental health services for people who may have violent tendencies in order to reduce gun violence, yeah, sure. But this is just word salad. Prevention infrastructure, ensure effectiveness and sustainability of efforts. This was totally written by somebody who got like a, like an MBA from a college that nobody's heard of and just uses all the buzz, buzzwords. <laughs> all right. Under this heading, we have support gun violence research. Okay. I'm there. I'm with you. This is good. Yes. Good research by smart researchers who question how, where, and in what way the data was collected. They use their uh, statistical models to actually parse through things like the which way causality is going based on time series data. They compare it to the overall trends in other areas. We uh, parse out the data based on our hotspots here. We break it up according to suicides and violence and we take out accidents or we look in which ways that can be prevented. We apply our very simple formula talking about the net benefits, the net harms, and Oh, that's not what they're saying at all. They say ensure that the centers of disease control and prevention and um, have other resources to study this issue and provide, quote unquote, science-based guidance. No, this is not a disease. <laughs> Center for disease control. Guns are not a disease, guys. That's ridiculous. But I do support the research so long as we do a good job. Health system. Establish a comprehensive health system in which violence prevention is a Health system responsibility and imperative. Again, more words out. Um, I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that means. All right. New frontiers. Continue to learn, innovate, and increase impact through research and practice. Community healing. Prevent community trauma. What, what, what is this list? What is this list? Um, what does that mean? I don't know. Mental health and well-being. Invest in communities to promote resilience and mental health and well-being. Guys, take out an and, put in a comma, put in another comma. This is ridiculous. Um, they've said the same thing a thousand times, it seems. So let's hope that we find some new stuff after this. Because again, obviously, we support mental health. And we support red flag, red flag laws. If we have strong protections against just like accusations, meaning that somebody's rights are, are taken away. And we like the idea that we have this insurance um, model that we laid out earlier that can kind of take care of that space in between and deter people at the margins who are bad and encourage people at the margins who are good. 
Next suggestion of theirs. Support healthy norms about masculinity. Oh, will you look at that. Masculinity, they think, is the problem. Let me remind people. Uh, senseless violence is not masculine. Not at all. Um, Christ is our model, ultimately, of masculinity. And, uh, yeah, I don't think he was doing senseless violence. He did have some violence included. For instance, he makes that whip of cords and he drives out the, the money changers. And when he returns, uh, he returns as a conquering king, um, as a messiah, which will defeat the forces of evil. But uh, no, I don't think that uh, this represents masculinity, uh, the violence in general that has no, um, no sense to it. Definitely not. So I'm not sure what they think is currently being included in the definition of masculinity, but I doubt most people would say that that's part of it. Impulsive anger. Ah, righty. We need to talk, it says, explore the linkages between anger and gun violence. Gee, I wonder what the linkage could be. Yes, of course, we, we need to deal with, uh, with outbursts of anger, right? Um, we need meekness, which means you have power, but you have power harnessed and controlled. So increasing virtue in our population, certainly. But that's not done by just government fiat, nor is that done through an overly medicalized intervention, which it seems to be pushing. Uh, that ultimately ought to be done by the church. Um, it ought to be empowered by the sacraments, implemented by the laity, and backed up by the clergy. So we need to do that. So I'll take this one. I'll, I'll say this is reasonable, but um, I don't think that they suggest the right means. Economic development. Here's the thing, guys. We have plenty of people listening in other countries. Many countries which are more economically disadvantaged than the United States. I have African listeners. I have South American listeners. I have plenty of listeners who right now are probably, um, probably poorer than many of the people who are in these cities which I identified earlier, which are hotspots of gun violence. Let me ask you. Does your poverty ever drive you to this type of violence? I think that the violence is a morality problem. It's not just a wealth problem. Um, yeah, I, don't get me wrong. You're listening to a podcast which focuses heavily on economics. And if you really wanted, I could give you plenty. I could give you a whole episode on how to increase the economic well-being of people who are currently in poverty in the United States, particularly in... Um, in urban areas. Like, sure. Um, but yeah, we need to take this one with a grain of salt. Uh, it is individuals who are responsible for individual actions. Uh, just because somebody does something wrong does not mean that that's like a wholesale failure of the community or it's a result of a, um, a corrupt system that they were placed in as if they have no agency. We believe that you actually have agency in your, in your choices. You're not ever driven to sin. Um, there's always grace sufficient for you to avoid it. All right, next one, next one. Law enforcement violence. Establish accountability for sworn officers and private security. At some point, maybe I'll do an entire uh, episode just about law enforcement violence. When you dig into the data, it's not anything like what the media will lead you to believe. Um, we'll leave it there, but hey, look into it uh, yourself a little bit. Technology, advanced gun safety and self-defense technology. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds fun. All right, and there's there's more um, 
some more suggestions. These get a little bit more into it. I might not be able to get through all of these word salads, um, but we'll hit a few more before we end. They want to get rid of bump stops, uh, high capacity mags. Um, I don't think that that's a, that's a terribly good idea. This is the sensible gun law. So they did explain it a little bit. So I retract some of my criticism. Um, I don't think that there's a terribly large quantity of evidence to show that these things are the causal factor or really make gun crime tangibly worse. And you do also need to look at the net benefits of having these things around. Uh, Universal background checks without loopholes. The gun show loophole is not what you think it is. If you don't believe me, go try to buy a gun at a gun show. You're going to find that you already have to go through a background check. Unless it's literally just one random dude selling it to another random dude, at which point these universal background checks would just say, hey, you guys have to then go to a gun store together, send it through the gun store, and then have it come out to the next person. That is not enforceable. So no, just saying that you have to do this, it's not really possible. I could just sell you a gun, like just the two of us, and if you ever were found with that gun, uh, you could just say, yeah, it's my friend. So he, he lent it to me. And that's totally fine. So unless we want to say that we can't like lend out guns, um, there would be no way for us to ever enforce this peer-to-peer sale. So keep that in mind. Instituting waiting periods. That's already present commonly. Also, um, gun dealers, <laughs> if you've ever talked to a gun dealer, tried to buy a gun, if they think that you were like a shady dude, they, they just won't sell it to you. And we need to, here's this, tangible suggestion. We need to make strong protections uh, for people who don't want to sell guns to people. Um, I would worry that uh, people could cry, I don't know, race or gender or something. They could come up with some way that they must be disadvantaged and then say that they were discriminating against them. But um, I think that we need to respect the judgment of people who sell guns. They care a lot about safety. They're immersed in this uh, gun culture that is very law-abiding, as we've talked about earlier. So I want to protect their rights to decline sale. That would be a good one. They don't suggest that, but I would. Waiting periods, um, not necessarily. And that we need to see data about whether or not that's that's workable. But I'll agree that could be sensible in some situations. But we're going to need to look at some empirical data on this, some good stuff. And reinstitute the assault weapons ban immediately. No. First, that's... Flatly against the Constitution, in my opinion, because the purpose of the Second Amendment is to have a well-regulated militia, and that's part of the things that you need for a militia. Also, assault weapons are not the primary tool of violence. Instead, it's mostly handguns. Um, finally, I, th- I think that the assault weapons do, in fact, have um, other uses which are positive. And I'll remind people that assault weapons are a pretty loosely defined category. It typically just means semi-automatic rifles where they're not automatic. So you think assault rifle, it's not like it's just shooting an infinite amount of bullets as you hold down the trigger. No, it's one at a time. Establish a culture of gun safety. Sorry, that exists. Talking about youth and individuals uh, harming themselves and others. Yes, I agree. We need to talk about um, um, mental health, obviously. And we need to deal with suicide prevention. Yep. That's a point of common ground, totally. Uh, they talk about background checks again. Yeah, we, we've we kind of covered those things. Domestic violence bills um, and gun re- got violence restraining orders. I think that's part of the red flag laws. If there's a domestic abuser, and we could show that in court, 
yes, I think we could remove guns from that home. That's reasonable. But I much, I'm much more inclined to support such restrictions when it's done by, say, a local judge in a specific community um, than to apply some, like, law that just goes across the entire country and treats every place the same because that's just not that's just not feasible oh let's see five uh, percent of gun dealers sell 90 percent of guns used in crimes and must be held accountable no i don't think so um here's why because as we talked about earlier the gun violence is geographically located and gun dealers are geographically located ergo we would expect exactly this it doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean that they're doing something that, that is breaking their supposed code of conduct. Um, but yeah, I think they should be able to deny sales. Um, but even if they do, somebody could always have their friend buy it. So there's just a restriction about how far we can go practically to, to make these changes, right? All right, what else? They want to get rid of the gun industry immunity laws. We covered that. That's ridiculous. For the same reason to be ridiculous to sue Ford because you use a... Uh, a, um, a car to run somebody down. Um, do, 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 do. Mandatory training and licensing for owners. Um, no, I like my insurance thing more because it's, uh, it's entirely voluntary and it will allow for um, training and sometimes even funded by the insurance company, but it's not mandatory. I think we need to respect people's freedoms here. Also, this has the problem of these types of um, demands mean that criminals aren't going to abide by them, at least not normally. Require safe gun storage. Sure, but again, I think this is very hard to enforce. It'd be easier to do so with a voluntary system that um, relies on the insurance model. And they have a few other ones, but they repeat themselves a ton. Um, they want to go back to this medicalizing things. They want to deal with the trauma thing, whatnot. We talked about all that. What other suggestions are there? <laughs> yeah, they want to... It's a heck of a lot about, yeah, there you go, guys. That's pretty much all of it. Um, I'm sure that we could find some other suggestions, but that's kind of the way that I, I treat most of those. Well, let's see. You guys have listened to me yatter on long enough today. Um, one last thing I want to say is I mentioned at the top of the episode that I wanted to give a little bit of uh, financial or money advice I want you guys to let me know by email at thegordiannod101 at gmail.com. Um, would you rather that I do maybe a short segment at the end of episodes where I just give a little bit of advice here or there? Or would you prefer like a one-stop shop episode where I deal with a specific topic? For instance, I could deal with oh, I don't know, investments or um, dealing with debt or budgeting in general, how to deal with uh, ongoing expenses, how to increase income, how to avoid taxes, things like that. Would you prefer an episode that's like that? Or maybe just a tip that ends at the end of each. So let me know that and I'm happy to do either. So I'll try to start to work something into the episodes because it sounds like that'd be popular. And hey, I focus a lot on economics. Why not do a small pivot to the things that people are asking for? And if you have any comments, any questions, any hate mail, this might get hate mail. I really don't get much hate mail. I don't get enough. But I've hit a controversial topic, so maybe I'll get hate mail now. Uh, send it to that same email address, thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.